Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 15. This week, we'll be talking to Aaron Betsky, who was recently selected as the new dean at Taliesin, Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture. We'll also discuss the recent nomination of 10 Frank Lloyd Wright buildings to the UNESCO World Heritage List. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Ken, and Donna. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. Hi. So I was thinking, instead of doing our typical intro and talking about what we all did during the week, uh, I was thinking that we'd go all meta and actually discuss the intro. I like Sounds it. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> did I just blow introspective. everyone's mind? Wow. <laughs> typical introspective teenager, 15 episodes in and just can't stop. We're questioning everything now. Yeah. <laughs> nice one. Nice Is one. this podcast even real? So, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the reason we're, why we're doing this is... I mean, in general, the, we've been getting a great response to the podcast. A lot of, a lot of really good feedback. People are starting to become familiar with, with us and the show and the topics I, I think are getting really interesting each week, even more interesting, you know, but there has been a couple, actually two to be specific, negative comments to the podcast. And one of them in particular mentioned something that I see a lot of among podcasts that I listen to is a, there was a comment about our intros as being, I guess, specifically painful to listen to uh, <laughs> because it's not, we're not talking about the the news, you know, we're not talking about architecture directly, even though I believe that almost everything we talk about in the intro is somewhat related to architecture. So, so I thought I'd open up the discussion so we could all talk about, you know, about our intro and, and why, why it is that we, we do start each show with, with a discussion like this. So I'll volunteer to go first in the thoughts circle, in the sharing circle. Um, <laughs> I think the intros serve a very specific purpose for my particular role in this, because personally, as a writer for Archonnect and an, and an editorial manager, I think it's pretty important that I come clean that I'm not an architect. I'm very straightforward about that. And most of my writing, I try to be very clear that the perspective that I come to architectural news and issues of the built environment is not from a practitioner or someone who's been trained as an architect. So I just kind of see the intros as a place for me to individuate and to say, okay, here is where I am coming from and and humanize me a little bit and also justify why that diversity of perspective may be the very reason why Archonnect is so awesome and why we try to put together these different perspectives and not necessarily only value the purest or the purely from architectural practice perspective, whereas that is all obviously extremely important. And so that's my, I think, like immediate perspective as to why I can see that the intros can serve a very specific humanizing purpose to get the issues that we're talking about more context. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's really, it's really about context. I am one of those people that kind of obsessively listens to podcasts and I have been uh, for years. And one thing that I've recognized is a lot of the podcasts that I listen to have the same topics or the same guests, but it's the hosts and their unique perspectives that kind of make the podcast unique. So, you know, I think by giving us as a group, an opportunity to talk about some issues either personally that we're personally involved in or issues around us, our opinions on it. You know, it is providing some context once we get into the, uh, the meat of each episode and we're talking about issues in the news and, and talking with architects and other types of guests that we have on the show. I think uh, I really feel like the podcast for me is an extension of the forums. And I feel like in the forums, I've always talked about, I've always tried to take it as a sort of a mentorship position that I'm, I know there are young architects out there that are maybe just in their first job or, and maybe they're in a firm and they don't get a lot of exposure to other 
firms or other ways of practice, or they don't know a lot of architects. And I like the idea that I can talk about my experience and that can maybe reflect someone else's experience and they can can learn something from it. Even if it's just something simple, like, you know, I'm almost 50 and I've never designed really a building completely from the ground up all by myself. I've done it with other people where we're co-designers, but um, I feel like that's, you know, when you get out of school, you might feel like that's something you're supposed to do right away. And I like the idea that we can, as practicing architects, talk about what we've done. The fact, Paul, that you went to architecture school, but you now run this website rather than practicing traditionally. And um, I, I feel like giving other people exposure to different ways of doing things is part of why we have the intro, where we talk about what our own paths have been, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, 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 makes, that makes a lot of sense. Ken, do you have any ideas uh, or any thoughts on this issue? Well, it is difficult, I think, for me, because unlike Donna, I am not to a large degree, not outed on Arcanact. I still maintain a pseudonym that I routinely go by. And I think you could probably connect me a little bit easier, easily by how I talk about particular issues. But I think, you know, I try to maintain my my humanness and be authentic to who I am. So I'm pretty passionate about certain things. And I want to reflect that. And, and you know, I think talking a lot about architecture, sometimes it gets a little too navel-gazing and I think when we talk about, you know, in these moments about what we're doing, how our weekend went or the things that are that we're struggling with, I think it gives us a, a more nuanced sense. And, you know, we're like an onion. I mean, we're showing our <laughs> layers and kind of letting people know we're just not going to sit here and talk about the practice of architecture. There are podcasts that talk about the practice of architecture and they do it well. And I think we talk about things that have you know, connections to art, to, to culture, to a lot of different things, to politics. And I think, you know, this is a space to do that. And and like I said, uh, a message to you guys today, I said, you know, this is a painting that's under development. And, you know, if all you know about me or think about me is that here's this ranting guy from the East Coast who wants to rail on the South without any context, I mean, that doesn't say a lot about me as an individual, and it doesn't paint a full picture of who I am as a person. I'm uncompromising around certain issues, and I think I, you know, I, I'm passionate about those things. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it because it just doesn't feel right for me to do that. So I think if you know me as a person, then I think over the time you'll get to know the the best part of me, and and you know some of the worst parts <laughs> of me too. So. <laughs> Well, I think besides also, you know, humanizing us and personalizing us a little bit, the the intros in my mind would also try to ideally serve something that we discussed with Christopher Hawthorne when he was on the podcast, how we asked him the question, you know, it seems like you don't write about architecture, you write about something else and then you make it architectural. How do you justify mm -hmm. that? And he's and he had no qualms about saying, yeah, that's exactly what I try to do. I write about what interests me. And I'd write it from a viewpoint that I see as very important and very pivotal to our culture and to our society, then that is from the perspective of, art, of architecture and the built environment. And so I would say that that, that was very helpful for me to hear because I also just will try to, I am trying to in the intros, even if it, I am like maybe getting a little bit overexcited about a snowflake article I just wrote, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to bring in ideas that either have direct relationship to architecture or should be brought into the conversation because they could be proven to be very helpful or very enlightening. So I'm, I'm always trying to forge that link, even if it seems a little bit peripheral. Well, it seems like there's a, a big gray area, you know, between completely irrelevant to architecture and 100% relevant to architecture. 
And this is a topic that, or this is a, a comment that is not exclusive to the podcast at all. Uh, over the years, I've seen countless times people comment, you know, about a news article on our site not being about architecture, even though we we believe that that's not true. You know, what do you guys think about that? What do you guys think about that that type of criticism about discussions or news or topics that we discuss not being about architecture? I think ultimately, I'll give you an example. So when I'm being critical of something or like a, a particular region of the country that it it's, I think there is a connection. It's about our actual engagement with everything. I mean, you know, not just architecture, but uh, our political systems and, and how if we disengage, it creates these spaces that people just don't, there's apathy and there's there's room for exploitation and we don't take, we're not civically responsible or, you know, we don't have a civic responsibility when we disengage the way we do in certain parts of the country. And we get laws that don't actually reflect our values. And then we wonder why, you know, for instance, one of the regulars was, has been talking about um, on Facebook about how Walmart has come in and really kind of pushed aside uh, land use regulations in where he lives. And, you know, to what end? Well, because mostly taxpayers don't want to have their taxes raised. So they let corporations come in and build whatever they want. And that's, that's about architecture, right? We're not civic, we're not engaged civically. We're not connected to our government. We don't take a responsibility for our role in the world. And we kind of, the businesses and corporations take over because they can. So I think there is a lot of things that are kind of, like you said, peripheral, but they have tentacles in either urban kind of thinking, cultural thinking, architectural. And I think that makes sense to me. Yeah. As practitioners of architecture, we're not only concerned with buildings. We're concerned with how buildings fit into culture. And you have to, yeah, you have to engage in these bigger questions. I mean, I also think the best architects and designers I have worked with have been very curious about the world. And, I, you know, I think about one, one of my highest levels of praise that I can say about someone is that they know their shit. They totally know their shit. Like when I work with a mechanical engineer who knows exactly everything about what he's doing or she, that's a great person to work with because they are knowledgeable and excited. I went to a lecture once by a guy talking about turtles in the canal where I live. This guy knows everything about turtles. He's a turtle biologist and he is so passionate about it. And it's so much fun to talk to him about that stuff. And I think that architects who are curious about people like that and how they view the world, that can only make us better architects, better designers is my attitude. Yeah, that's a great point. Personally, I love seeing completely non-architectural issues being brought up on Archonnect because I really enjoy reading the architect's perspective on these issues, which I think is is uh, is unique, you know, compared to a, a discussion about the same topic on, you know, the CNN website or on a, a website that is, uh, you know, populated by professionals in a different industry. What makes me a better designer is that my focus isn't always on architecture. I'm always trying to bring a material outside of the profession to look at a world uh, through the lens of something else in order to kind of enrich the things that make what I'm interested in, in architecture that much better or thoughtful. And I think you can't have a world that's kind of so inwardly focused that you don't look at what's going on outside the world and kind of miss everything. I mean, you know, I think that's been criticism of, I think that's been a criticism of Eisenman, certainly to a, to a large degree. He's kind of 
kind of um, you know so inwardly focused on architecture that some things get missed. And I, I would debate that with people, um, but I think, like Donna said. I'm interested in the world because the world is what's going to make me a better person, going to make me a better architect, going to make me a better thinker. And when we take on these issues, I mean, our first two topics, our first two topics out of the gate dealt with women in architecture. And I think we talked about racial disparities. I mean, I, if I, I could be wrong about the second one, but, you know, those are things that happen that are not just architecture related. Those are, uh, those are societal issues. And, what we, we just talk about, we just talk about the great Frank Lloyd Wright all day. I mean, you know, that would be, <laughs> we could do that, but it's not going to make for a very interesting podcast. And it's not going to make for a very interesting discussion for me. Um, so that's kind of where I've been going. Well, you know, the goal to please everyone never ends up resulting in in anything that interesting. So yeah. hopefully the people that, that come and listen to our site, enjoy it. But for those of you listeners out there, we were really curious. Do you like our intros? Do you hate them? Do you, uh, do you hate our intros about intros? <laughs> uh, <laughs> let us know. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's been, um, it's been really great getting feedback regarding the podcast and we'd love to start getting feedback on, uh, you know, certain parts of it. And right now the, the intros are, are up for debate. So let us, let us know what you think. Definitely. Definitely let us know. And uh, and do it on Twitter because I'm on Twitter a lot lately. So hashtag, yeah, do the, the Arconnect sessions, hashtag Arconnect sessions and let us know. Can I be the contrarian? Yes. Just a little bit. I, don't, I really don't care of if course. you think about my intro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, no, I'm kidding. Ken. I'm kidding. It'll get better. <laughs> There's room for both. Be vulnerable. <laughs> no, I think one of the things I, I've really said, I've committed myself to doing after this this discussion, not just this discussion, but the this off uh, air discussion, is that I'm going to get more focused on reading things that are that I could bring to the table that have nothing to do with what we're talking about. So that at least the intro taps into something that I just said, which is what am I interested in outside of architecture? So I think that way at least I can talk about say, hey, I, I architected all weekend. Who, who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think Ken, it's it's like uh, you know, the one of my favorite additions to the podcast that you've introduced in the last couple episodes has been the question to our guests about what they're listening to and what they're reading. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's not related at all to no. what they do or to architecture, unless they're, you know, just reading architecture books, which none of our guests have admitted to. Yeah. But you know, it it's uh I mean, I I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. And it's what I like in a lot of the interviewers that I listen to on a regular basis. Definitely. I've been surprised what people have said. I mean, the, I was like, wow, I never heard of that book. And now I'm like, I'm checking that yeah, book out. And now I'm I want to like, go look that, it up. That yeah. music, I haven't heard that. So I'm like, now I'm like, I'm jazzed. And that's great. <laughs> I can hear how jazzed you are. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you can hear it. I could hear it on your desk. That was my dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on your dog. Don't take out your jazz it on the dog. <laughs> So let's move on to the news due to popular yeah. demand. So it's a very right-filled episode we've got today. The first topic from the news that, that we're talking about is uh, recently 10 Frank Lloyd Wright buildings were nominated to the UNESCO World Heritage List. Uh, just to kind of list those, that includes uh, the Unity Temple and Park in Oak Park, Illinois, Frederick C. Roby House in Chicago, Illinois, Taliesin in Spring Green, Wisconsin, Holly Hawk House in L.A., Falling Water in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, the Herbert and Catherine Jacobs House in Madison, Wisconsin, Taliesin West in Scottsdale, Arizona, 
the uh, Guggenheim in New York, Price Tower in Oklahoma, and the Marin Civic Center in uh, in Marin County, California. What do you guys think? It really went the uh, more bang for your buck option in this one, nominating 10 buildings all at once from like all of which it seems impossible to imagine not existing on this earth. That was kind of an obvious thing. And what's so fascinating about this nomination as well is it's the first modern architecture nomination by the U.S. You know, the majority of the other UNESCO World Heritage Sites are from ancient civilizations or not nothing like from the modern era. And we have now 10 of Frank Lloyd Wright's, which is quite fascinating. I'm very interested to see whether this will get accepted. And I was starting to look through exactly what it takes to be named at an UNESCO World Heritage Site. And the the website lists about 10 possible nomination factors, and you only have to fulfill one of them. But they're just insanely hard to really know how you would actually evaluate that. Like one of them is, is it an outstanding piece of genius? And you can say, okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, of course. Um, I think it's far more fascinating to try to imagine you know, being in New York City and walking by the former Guggenheim site and what would be there if not the Guggenheim or in Falling falling Water, for example, like how to imagine that being there and then someone consciously allowing that to go away or just disappear or be destroyed. I think those are the more like emotionally taxing and difficult to answer questions where it seems like this might just be a no brainer. Definitely for tourism, <laughs> I can. it seems like a really hard sell to not have these be named as historically relevant sites and protected as such. I also noticed that that the first criteria was a work of genius, which, I mean, let's face it, Frank Lloyd Wright is a genius. He was a genius. He, he And I have grown up near him, I near his Taliesin West. I've spent time there and at other sites of his in Philadelphia. And every time I go to one, I just am reminded again, good Lord, this man was a genius. He totally was. I, I, he's not like most people in any way. Clearly, they, they should meet on the criteria of that criteria. But the other thing that I think is really interesting is that the other United States sites are historically important. Statue of Liberty, Monticello, which you could also say is the work of a genius, most likely, and Independence Hall in Philadelphia. So these are nominated now, though, because of their architecture, because they are architecture. So for the U.S. to say that our first nomination that is of world significance is it, it, as an architect, as architecture, I think this is pretty spectacular. And the other thing I just thought was was cool about the protection, if they do win it, is that it means um, that damaging them is in war has more serious consequences. It goes against the rules of war if you damage a UNESCO heritage site. That sounds foreboding. It does, doesn't it? Architecture war crimes. Yeah, <laughs> you could get holed up in court for tagging the side of the uh, <laughs> of Monticello in the next civil war or something. <laughs> is it is it me or is does it seem like the foundation or rights work is a lot in the news lately? I mean there was um, somebody building Legos related to Taliesin West. There is Betsky. There's is there's the Hollyhock House that, mm-hmm. that was just in the news. The Hollyhock House just opened. Yeah, so I, I wonder is like why is all of this? Why all of a sudden this percolation of right? And is there some broader goal here that the foundation is trying to achieve? I I'm curious about I'm curious about that. And the the one house I did really like, and I think it still resonates today out of that list of ten, is the Jacobs House. Very very simple, and something about it is very very like I see that. I see all of that work, all of that detail in work. Like you can, there's tons of that kind of thing being done today in, in various shapes and forms. But it, I was looking at it and going, wow, that seems awfully contemporary. I don't know for sure what the foundation is, what their goals are. But I do think that I do feel like from what I know about the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, they 
the players on the board, et cetera, they are really interested in in upping the profile of, of Wright even more and of all of his works. I'm a member of the foundation now. After I went and visited a while ago, I joined and so I get their magazine. And there is a, there's a lot of scholarly work being done on Wright still, which is pretty amazing that, that he's had such a legacy, that he has such a legacy and such an influence and, um, and that he was so prescient in his designs, you know, that he knew so much about how America, the United States was going to develop. I do think he's the most important architect in our country. Certainly. And this will just really serve to push him to the to the whole world. So I, I do think that's part of the foundation's goal, yes, is to just up the stature even more. And certainly, you know, that would def- this would definitely do that. I think that there's is some strangeness though around the actual protections that come with UNESCO heritage status. As far as I could tell, you know, sites that are named that are given this status aren't necessarily given any particular protection by UNESCO in particular. They are kind of raised in status and in cultural capital and such and often given more national attention, but it effectively is still the responsibility of the nation where the site exists to take care of it and to manage it and preserve it and make sure no harm befalls it. So do you guys have any ideas about like, based on what we've seen with other World Heritage sites? I remember hearing recently that there was, um, I forget the name of the site, but somewhere in Peru that had been damaged in some deforestation or something like that. Maybe you guys know more specifically the, uh, about this. The Greenpeace thing, right? The Nazcat lines. The Nazcat lines, yeah. yeah. And how that was just egregious. They were like partially erased or something in the course of cutting down the forest. And so having... No, I think it was a, a protest during the global environmental summit that was occurring in, in Peru. I think they were protesting on the Nazcat lines. And in the process of protesting and going out there with their big banners, they erased some of those uh, historic... Yeah, so that's <laughs> that's yeah. incredibly yeah, tragic, and, mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah, and just very insane to imagine. And to think of of right structures and getting to this level of prestige or international attention, where you know that they could be leveraged in that type of way, is is a strange thought. And it's strange to try to imagine what exactly, how exactly this does protect these buildings or ensure their continued existence, or whether it might just turn them into more of a national touristic function, which seems to sometimes, unfortunately, be the case with these like super high level preservation statuses. I, I, mean, I do have one, a brief response to that, which is a little bit cynical, but um, a lot of it is if you're going for grants, if a, as a nonprofit or an institution, you're tr- going for a grant, if you can say we are listed on such and such, you know, we're a national register listing, we're a whatever, that helps you get grants. So, I mean, if nothing else, these sites, if they do get this listing, and then they need to do things like go to the state to get money for for re-roofing or whatever. They, they're more likely to be able to get those grants because of the listing. So it just gives more... What's it called? Clout, almost. It gives you more clout. Exactly. Exactly. So from a purely financial standpoint, that could be part of it. But I certainly think they deserve it. I am really curious about how it works out with, with all 10. Like, do they all 10 get a little plaque or do we just have <laughs> one plaque somewhere that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about the sort of structural. I think they got a volume discount for plaques <laughs> at the plaque store. So, And will it be a Frank Lloyd Wright designed plaque or <laughs> no, well, I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> It'll probably be red though and placed at the lower right-hand corner yes. of the building. Navajo red. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm kind of surprised, you know, knowing that the United Nations is involved, I'm surprised that Fox News hasn't gotten a hold of this press release and actually done some hard-hitting newsifying it. 
and bringing it down as some kind of infiltration of the United Nations into our sovereignty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, and it's promoting socialism, right? Taliesin West is just socialist. Right? You know, well, you know, John Kerry, he's, he speaks French, so he must be a socialist. <laughs> <laughs> well, this also certainly is a boon to whoever is going to option Frank Lloyd Wright's life as a movie, because this is just like, you know, if, if you imagine the end credits to any biopic or something, and then they roll those... And then after they died, these things happened text were like, you know, and then his 10 of his sites became World Heritage. Uh, it just would be fantastic way to, to end any film. Well, my theory with all this Frank Lloyd Wright news that's uh, popping up these days is that it's coming from a movie studio that's planning on a big star studded uh, blockbuster about Wright's life. So this is all a promotional. That's not. I mean, I'm not. I'm not being serious. But... <laughs> Oh, I believe it, though. But I mean, it, it's about time. <laughs> it's it's about time, isn't it? That that there's a decent movie made about Frank Lloyd Wright's life. I heard Peter Jackson's going to direct it, and it's going to be on IMAX yep. 3D. And <laughs> <laughs> and come on, most importantly, it's going to star Brad Pitt. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Maybe right? it could be the first movie filmed uh, for the Oculus Rift. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like you're right there in the space. Get it right there wow. in the space. Oh, it could be called that. <laughs> No, we have to put a cap on the number of Frank Lloyd Wright puns that we push into this episode. We're already capping out. Yeah, we're pretty close. <laughs> but speaking of Frank Lloyd Wright, should we move on to talk about or introduce our interview with Betsky? Um, we also, we spoke with him last week, right after the news came out that he would be heading the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture in Taliesin. And uh, we had a great conversation with him. It was super fun. And Aaron is a very, not only a very eloquent speaker, but a very passionate one and very <laughs> involved in a lot of these different annals of, of the more controversial edges of architecture. And the fact that he's kind of picking up Frank Lloyd Wright's school at this time and it's in his particular struggling character is really interesting. And we're hoping that he'll have some some big plans to see what he can, where he can take the school. We also loved imagining him, you know, washing dishes and taking care of his, uh, his plot on the land and settling down at night in a little desert tent. Uh. <laughs> yep. Wearing a poncho. Yeah. Natch. <laughs> the only thing I would say before we actually go to, to the interview is, um, with the news lately about the accreditation, a few students, and I, I posted links to this on Archonnect, a few students and people sort of started telling their stories. They started coming in and saying, look, I'm a student at Taliesin, at Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture, and I can tell you what I think is going on. And there's some YouTube videos of a guy named Pablo, and I'm forgetting his last name. I think he goes by Pabs, you know, talking about what he thinks needs to happen with the accreditation. To date, looking at things like the Right Chat website and checking those students' web pages, I have not seen much chatter from people within the school about what they think of the Betsky appointment. So I'm curious to see if any of that will come out later or, you know, yeah, to just I'm I'm really curious what the student reaction is, because as I see it, they've got something pretty exciting happening here. Well, maybe we have some listeners at the school that would like to chime in and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We're here with Aaron Betsky, who has recently been appointed the head of Taliesin Architecture School, the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture. Previously, Aaron Betsky was the leader at the Cincinnati Museum of Art and has held many different prominent positions in authorities of the art institutions and architecture institutions. So Aaron, great to have you. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Very happy to be here. If, albeit virtually. Yes. <laughs> Where are you, in fact, Aaron? I'm in Cincinnati. Ah, okay. We have a wonderful 
mid-century modern house here that unfortunately uh, we've now sold as we move on to the next chapter. So as a first official question, I need to ask, are you wearing a cape right now? (laughs) Uh, No, I'm not wearing a cape, but I do wonder, you know, as director of the Cincinnati Art Museum and previous to that in my other positions, I built up quite a collection of of ties and suits. And I guess I'm going to have to think about uh, a somewhat less formal way, manner of attire. (laughs) Somewhat, somewhat, but you know, you you, you can do a poncho every now and then and and a cape. I don't know if capes are in the informal or formal category these days. Uh, That's true. That's a very good question. Yeah. So Aaron, we've been following what's going on with accreditation and the various issues that Frank Lloyd Wright School has been going through regarding that for quite some time. And it seems like at this point, the school is in kind of a rocky territory and that its reputation is kind of starting to suffer because of that. So we first wanted to know, how do you conceive of the school's current reputation and what do you plan to do with it? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that it has affected its reputation. I think there was uh, or is one very specific issue, which is that the accreditation organization that oversees this area has made it clear that they do not think that a school can be a wholly owned subsidiary of another institution. And for that reason, a path had to be found for the school to either collaborate or become independent. The school has chosen to become independent, and that is a process that has already begun and that I look forward to leading. So I have every confidence that we will be able to fulfill uh, that transformation and be the independent Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture based at both Taliesin West and at Taliesin East, which are, of course, just absolutely magical places. So it will gain its strength uh, from those particular places. To to do so means that we will have to raise some additional funds, and that process has also already started, and the school board is uh, well on its way to raising the necessary funds. And again, that's something that uh, I will jump into and lead with, with gusto and enthusiasm. So, Aaron, this is Donna. I have been following this search for a new director since it started. And one of the things that really struck me about the job posting was that they said very clearly they were looking for a director who and I'm quoting from the posting, we're looking for a director with the energy and vision to help us make these large changes happen. We don't want someone who designs like Wright. We want someone who can think as boldly as he did. And it sounds like they really were looking for someone who could really transform the school in a lot of ways. That was before all of the issues with accreditation came up. So that sort of, to me, adds an extra layer of challenge. I wanted to ask you, though, about the speed of change that you predict. I know coming out of the museum world, Museums change very slowly. Things are always tied up in protocols. And I I work in a museum myself, and that can be a challenge for architects who want to quickly change things. And I understand you have a reputation for wanting to do things quickly. So I'm wondering if you um, are thinking that you can go in and very quickly start to institute some some changes. And then how would you balance that with the fact that the Taliesin West and East, both, as you said, they're national historic landmarks. I mean, those are national cultural, international cultural treasures. And so there must be a sort of slow pace that people associate with the management of those facilities as well. So do you see a sort of conflict between trying to change things quickly and then this great weight of legacy that the schools themselves have? It's interesting I think, that you perceive the weight of legacy as what would uh, weigh on the ability to change or the speed of change. I think the issue is much more prosaic than that. It is now February or January, almost February. I will start in February. I will move there in April. 
a great deal of the curriculum uh, will have been set by then, as, of course, will the students and faculty. Uh, so not only that, but, but I actually see that as a bit of a, uh, of a, a good thing for me because it will give me a chance to get to know people there, to get to know the institution, to get to know the ins and outs of the place, and then begin to make the kind of changes that I think are not contradictory to the legacy you describe but are a way of carrying that legacy forward. You quoted from uh, the call that I responded to, and I responded to it because of that language, because I do think that we have to realize that Frank Lloyd Wright was a great experimenter, someone who addressed some of the issues that are still absolutely central to why and how we build today, questions of what it means to be at home in a modern world, how we live in our sprawling environments, how we build with the land rather than on top of it, how we can think of architecture as an experimental endeavor based on doing as well as seeing and interpreting, how we can think of an architecture of democracy, how we can think of an architecture that helps us know and understand our environment in a profound manner. These, I think, are all traditions that have to be carried forward. The buildings that the School of Architecture will be housed in or, or is housed in embody that tradition in one particular manner, uh, a manner that is, as I said, magical and beautiful, but that we also have to carry forward. So I think that over the next few years, I hope to be able to use those traditions and renew those traditions in a way that will allow the school really to become the best experimental architecture school in the world. I do think that one of the things I will bring to Taliesin is a fairly broad international perspective. And I look forward, I've already mentioned to them that I would look forward to having the school collaborate with other schools and institutions to create really a network of that kind of experimental architectural education. So so that actually goes right into what my next question was going to be, which was about the sort of insular monastic nature of the school that it seems like it has had. I went to Cranbrook. It was something very similar. Mm. It sounds to me like you are thinking about reaching out, not just to other schools, but also maybe into the city of Phoenix or into, you know, community, um, other architecture happenings within the community? Or are you really looking forward to that, like disappearing into the desert? No, 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 absolutely. <laughs> I think that you have to balance, I'm not sure I would call it monastic, but certainly the oasis-like aspect of Taliesin West, actually of Taliesin West and East, the great placemaking that both places embody and the surrounding community, and especially in Scottsdale, I think it's extremely relevant to look out from Taliesin at the sea of red tile roofs, or actually in that case, they're mainly gray tile roofs. And for instance, I said to them, one of the things that Wright was very upset about back in the day was the construction of the power lines right in front of the property along the canal. I said to them, it would seem to me that the project that the students and faculty might want to look at is not how can we ignore those power lines, but what can we do with them? And if you could see Taliesin and its forms as containing uh, germs of ideas that could be carried forward and that could be 
uh, of use to the valley as a whole. That, I think, would be a very valuable contribution. But in general, I think collaborating with the community, with its various cultural institutions, but as well with its infrastructure and with the community groups, I think is of, of paramount importance. And some of that is already going on there. Some of the student projects are already involved with things like they're looking at uh, helping in the design of a section of a highway. So those are the kind of projects that I think are really important to uh, support and to strengthen. Great. That sounds like it's exactly the way Phoenix and Scottsdale, too, are changing in such fast ways right now. Even despite the recession, they're growing and bringing in new populations. And it's great to think about Taliesin students engaging with that as we try to figure out how to build cities. So that's that's nice to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So regarding that balance between the monastic culture and the outward reaching, (laughs) however, (laughs) however ideal we can phrase that, how do you see... Taliesin's engagement with more of an external community outside other communities as a way for it to stay more competitive with other comparable architecture schools, if you're speaking about it as being the world's foremost experimental, or at least the U.S.'s foremost experimental architecture school. I'm sure there are many other institutions that would like to lay claim to that title. So how do you plan on leveraging that internal and external balance with competition? Well, as I tried to indicate before, I think that the traditions that Taliesin embody are traditions that have relevancy today because of the approaches that Frank Lloyd Wright developed, or at least speculated about, to everything from the American home to the American suburb, but also to the manner in which we can work that is an alternative to architecture being a servant of clients who are looking for the cheapest and most efficient structure in which they can invest the least amount of money and get their money out as quickly as possible. If we can rather see architecture as a way of knowing and changing our environment for the better, as I believe Frank Lloyd Wright understood it, and if we can figure out how you do that, given our current situation, current technologies, current social conditions and cultural conditions, current economic conditions, then I think the school will have a great deal to offer. How exactly you do that, that of course I don't know yet, but my strategy would be to collect the very best students and faculty and staff that I possibly can in order to find a way that we can address these kinds of issues through architectural education. That is exactly uh, the task that I think is before the school and that I want to try to take up. Aaron, this is Ken. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when I understood that you were taking over the school is the parallel, I think, in some ways between this school and what Kane is trying to do in New Jersey. Kane College is trying to do in New Jersey. And they're starting a new program and Obviously, it's no comparison to the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture, which I do. But what was interesting is that they seem to be um, approaching architecture pedagogy from a different perspective than was traditionally being done now. And I wanted to know, is there a role for Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture cross-culturally, internationally? I mean, can you see this kind of idea working outside of America, or is it really going to focus on what's going on in America? No, I certainly think there is an international... I'm not sure if movement is the right word, but there certainly are a lot of people who are thinking about how architecture and architectural education can perform a different 
role in our society. It's certainly something that I'm going to be looking at together with Alfredo Billenberg, Hubert Klumpner, and Darlene Liu as we do the 2015 Shenzhen Biennale, which exactly asks the question, can we have ways of making architecture and urbanism that offer alternatives to the imposition of abstract plans that ask the question, how do people live, work, and play How would they like to live, work, and play? What dreams and fears do they have? And what can architects do as activists, as activators, as catalysts within our human-made environment to make the world we have all created better, better in an environmental sense, in a social sense, and in an aesthetic sense? That exactly is what many of the architects and urbanists I admire around the world are doing today. And so, for instance, I can very easily imagine collaborating with a school like the IAC, the Autonomous School of Architecture in Barcelona, or with uh, some of the other European schools that also are challenging the notion of how you do education. You know, the Frankledge Wright's ideas about education came very much out of, on the one hand, uh, the arts and crafts movement and the notion that architecture should be tied to a social movement, to an aesthetic movement, and that those, in fact, are bound together through the seeing, knowing, and making of things. He also was strongly influenced by American pragmatism, this He, after all, came out of the Chicago of John Dewey and uh, Parker and people like that. And the notion that architecture is a form of transforming one's experience through experimentation, I think, is also very central to that tradition. We are now looking back at those traditions as we find technology becoming something that enables us, gives us greater access to the ability to make things and to know things. And at the same time, that is becoming more and more, if you will, mysterious or invisible. That is exactly why and when we need to find ways of recapturing our ability to remake the world through technology and through the making of things. And those are the traditions that I think are latent, inherent in the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture, and that I hope to be bringing out more. I appreciate your criticism and your take on architects and architecture and beauty and experimentation. And one of the byproducts of that, of course, of your criticism of New York Times and some of the writers has been a criticism towards yourself about not appreciating green technology. And how do you see the role of green tech? I'm not a big green person myself. I'm just not. I I think there are, I'm glad there are people out there who are doing those things to create a more sustainable planet. But do you see that it's fundamental to the goals of technology in terms of the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture, understanding the building's place in the world and on the site and the land and how to kind of deal with sustainability is an an important issue? Well, it's very strange how people read what they want to and don't read what they don't want to. Uh, I think maybe people are learning from Fox News. (laughs) Uh, I never said that I was against sustainable architecture. The whole point um, and part of what I did say in the article was that we need an architecture that does not needlessly use up natural resources. And we should always ask the question, do we need more buildings? Architects should ask themselves the question, if they receive a commission, 
do they really need to make a building that will inevitably, even if it's a net zero building, use up natural resources? Can we find other ways of making architecture that rely not on creating new construction with however many whiz-bang additions that uh, reduce its energy reliance? I think it's absolutely important that when and where possible, we make new buildings that are as sustainable as possible. I think there certainly is a room for technology. I don't think that we should greenwash architecture and pretend that ugly, socially divisive buildings that are a blot on the landscape, both in terms of sustainability and in terms of their social and aesthetic role, can be excused by putting some solar panels on it. We have to think of architecture as being truly sustainable, which might in some cases mean not building at all. But if we build, certainly building in a very sensible place. And and if I may continue for a second, uh, the other thing that I have been called in these critiques is elitist for merely pointing out that however much we would like the people to have the power to make their own places, they do not. And however much we can dream of architects being able to create a utopia, they cannot, they will not. And when they have tried in the past, not only have they failed, but in their failures, they have subjected us to spatial torture. We have to realize that architects work for clients and that those clients have the money and the power to see their goals their wishes and their standards fulfilled. If we are going to have a critical architecture, then we have to confront that reality. We can't just escape into an easy populism. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just had two architects thanking you for that statement. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I got into it with uh, Justin Schubau after that, that his article on Twitter, and oh man, was it frustrating. Yeah, I'm accused of being elitist frequently because I say that we know what we're talking about. We're architects, we know what we're talking about. And as you say, people that hire us know what they want from us. And yeah, yeah. So Aaron, maybe there's something in that beautiful golden kernel that you just planted with us that you could relate to the social atmosphere and the kind of the intellectual work and the social work that goes into living and working and being a student at at Taliesin. Because obviously it's a very specific student culture, very specific style of schooling. How do you imagine that legacy of that kind of very highly socially ideal scenario for the school? How do you imagine carrying that on? It's of course one of the things that is so attractive that students actually go there, live out in the desert, make their own shelter, live and cook and clean dishes together, and that the faculty uh, do all of that as well. I must say I'm better at drying than at washing. That's been pointed out to me several times, but (laughs) I, I will fulfill my role in that sense. It's really fabulous. Wait, do you play piano? I do not play piano. Oh, dang. Because they've got the music room there. Okay. I know. So that's, that's going to be, but I know lots and lots of great films and I can even be a great DJ because I have an amazingly eclectic taste. So I hope I can contribute <laughs> in that way. Look, I'm not going to be naive. I think that Taliesin has always had the issue of trying to balance their inward focus with the reality of the world in which we work. The very fact that it's so beautiful and that it sits on those hundreds of acres of desert terrain, always has with it the danger 
of uh, turning indeed into what, what does someone call it a monastery or something like that uh, earlier? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, monastery. That's always an issue. And so I think that the people there, at least that I've talked to, have always been aware of that. It's a question of balance. Of course, one of the great things is that there is this thing called the migration in which everyone moves between Spring Green and Scottsdale twice a year along the way, uh, going to see lots of great sites in the United States. There also is, and has been in the last few years, a great deal of travel, and many of the students also intern uh, in architecture offices around the world. Because Taliesin is what it is, the place also attracts all kinds of wonderful people. I don't want to name drop, but I've gotten notes from a lot of wonderful architects, both young and aspiring and up at the top of the food chain, if you will, <laughs> who have said how excited they are to come visit me in Taliesin and see what we're doing. And if we can attract even a quarter of these young up-and-coming women architects in Indonesia and China, uh, along with the big names in the United States, then I think that will also do a great deal to open the place up. You know, I, it's funny because right at the beginning of this process, when I was wondering whether I really should do this and whether this was really going to work, I got a note from an email or a text from Neil Denari, uh, all people, with a photograph, a snapshot from his room at Taliesin saying, I'm giving a lecture here. It's so great. I hear a rumor you might be interested in this place. It's so fantastic. That kind of engagement with people, I think, is really something that we can build up. So just a simple question, Aaron. You live in this known Carl Strauss house in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Do you get to live on campus? Yes. Or, oh, you are. Excellent. Well, certainly in Scottsdale, Excellent. there is a house that we will be able to use that's on campus. It's not by Franklin Wright, but by a pupil of his. So we're looking forward to living there. And Peter is trying to figure out if he can carve out a studio space there and be a productive member in the community by his art making. Peter is, is my husband. Um, in what paint, painting, what kind of art making? Uh, he do does do? sculpture. He does assemblage, okay. mainly from found materials. Oh, great! Oh, what a great environment for him to be. Yeah, there. exactly, cool. exactly. <laughs> the spring green situation is a little bit more difficult because the buildings are heavily used, heavily toured, and not all of them have been fully restored yet. So we're trying to figure out where I'm going to live there. But if I don't live on campus, we'll live certainly somewhere right near campus. And I am going to miss this house, I have to say. <laughs> uh, that's uh, probably the thing I will miss most about Cincinnati. Aaron, one of the things I've always wanted to know is that, is there a relationship between the Frank Lloyd Wright School and Arcosanti? Is there any connection between the two? Or is there any thought to maybe connecting with them so way? You know, I had the same question. I had the same question. And when I was there for my discussions with them in December, I actually met uh, the gentleman who is the current uh, head of Arcosante, and that was immediately what I said. Are we collaborating? Can we be collaborating? What could we do? So I certainly, there are some things that Taliesin has done with Arcosante, but that certainly is something I'd like to explore, as well as, of course, as of working with ASU and the other local institutions. Fantastic. Erin, I have a much more boring question, mostly about what the school has to do in order to become an autonomous independent subsidiary of the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, because we know that in their accreditation difficulties, the way that they can keep their accreditation is only if they become an autonomous entity. Mm -hmm. So what in your role do you need to do for that to happen? Well, first of all, we have to be reaccredited as a school of architecture, and that's something that's coming up this spring. We have to make sure that we 
are an institution of higher learning that meets accreditation requirements. And luckily, many, many years ago, I was responsible for obtaining that accreditation for SIARC way back in the day. So I've, I've been through that process. But what's also important is that the agreement with Atelius and Foundation means that the school will continue to be able to use the facilities. However, it will have to be financially independent. And in order to do that, first of all, we're going to have to raise some money. Uh, and that, as I mentioned, is something that's already well underway. And that is a project that I will take on as soon as I get there. In fact, I already seem to be wrapped up in it. And it also means that the school will, over time, have to grow uh, in order to have a more sustainable student size. Aaron, one of the thoughts I was just having um, is that you seems like you're hitting the ground running. Accreditation is going to happen or they're going to evaluate the school for accreditation this spring. What are your measurements for success? Do you have a five-year, 10-year plan? I mean, what are you thinking about? How do you start measuring? Is it just by bringing students in? Is What is that measurement for you? How do you see that success? Well, there is a five-year plan that mainly has financial goals which mean that after five years, the school really can be self-sufficient. So we have a, a nice amount of time to be able to achieve that self-sufficiency. As I already mentioned, I think that the school will have to grow somewhat. I think everyone agrees with that. How much it will need to grow and how it can utilize the current resources to do that are questions that I cannot yet answer. I will have to really dive into it to understand it. I also think that we need to continue to improve the quality of the students and faculty and staff. Uh, you know, people might have this idea that Taliesin is staffed with one particular type of person, but when you go there now, you will find very, very talented young architects from Arizona, as well as uh, two people who recently worked at OMA and are now on the faculty there, as well as people who are alumni and come out of the fellowship tradition. So there really is a, a mixture already of people and the kind of work that's going on there. Everything that I do will be geared towards enhancing the quality, the level of experimentation, the social and environmental qualities of the work that is done and the aesthetic work, quality of the work that is done. That's exactly going to be my work. How exactly I'm going to do that beyond using my knowledge, my experience of 30 years of teaching, good Lord, more than 30 years of teaching, <laughs> my network and, and my particular perspective, I don't know yet because I have a lot to learn and I won't learn it until I really get there and get my feet on the ground. You know, the, one of the things that we see a lot on the Archonnect, on the website and the forums is this kind of this constant bitch fest about technology and the hand. There's this constant tug of war, it seems, within the profession. And I think the the overall sense of what right was, was that I think misperception is that he was all about the hand and very, his beautiful drawings, his, not just his drawings, but his, his hand, his renderings, his technical skill, but he always pushed the edge of technology throughout his building process. So one of the things I'm curious about is, do you see a line between the two? Is there a distinction between them? Oh, no, absolutely. But, you know, I think that this debate to me seems so, so over. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, I don't know about you, you guys, but when I teach, my students don't either 
fetishized drawing or fetishized computer, for them, the computer as well as the pen and pencil are just part of their arsenal. And the really good students are the ones who move seamlessly between Rhino or whatever SketchUp or whatever the hell they're using and hand drawings and hand models. I think it's absolutely true that we have to make sure that the visual knowledge that comes from using your hand is maintained. And that takes a certain amount of discipline. It takes a certain amount of discipline, certainly when there are so many distractions. But again, the the good students that I have had the joy of teaching in the last couple of years, they're in architecture school because they love to draw and make things. And how they draw and make things extends from a good old number two pencil to a fancy pen to a digital pen to a, you know, it's, for them, it's great to be able to have now a 3D printer that is cheap enough that they can have it on their desk and play around and make things. I think that the deeper question is how new technologies are creating different ways of seeing and knowing. And that's all the way from one of my pet peeves, which is people doing fly-throughs in buildings. Although now, of course, I feel a little as if I need to not be so pet peeve about that, because now that you everyone can have a drone, you can fly through buildings. Exactly. <laughs> I, I used to always rant about the fact that no one experienced buildings that way, but that might not be true. But it also is a question, for instance, of uh, analytic and synthetic thinking. So I always have very specific issues with students who rely so much on printing models and making rotating computer models that they don't dive into their designs, uh, that they don't understand the kind of sectional relationships that models have. So you have to, if you're going to have these kind of discussions, I think you have to be very specific about what tools are used for what ways of seeing and recording, interpreting, knowing, and then designing. What tools, why, how, and where. And that exactly, I think, is at the core of at least that part of the the work of a school that has to do with how one sees and, and knows and makes. Aaron, this is Paul. I, I'm just wondering, you know, in your opinion, what is the student that is typically attracted to Taliesin? And during your leadership, do you hope to to change that or widen that demographic or maybe narrow it? Oh, gosh, I really wouldn't be able to tell you that because I've only met a couple of the students who seem, I think one thing you can say is a student who comes to Taliesin now is reasonably independent and self-confident and is willing to live in a shelter without water or electricity and take a make their showers in the locker room. That does sort of uh, select students as a whole. But beyond that, I, I really wouldn't be able to say that other than say anything about that other than that we want to attract the best students. Uh, you know, my dream is if I could take the two or three best students I've had in my last five years of teaching and put them all together. And that would be in a couple of years, the incoming class at Taliesin. That would be fantastic. Aaron, I, I just had two quick last questions for you. 
And I've been asking these lately because I'm always intrigued by what I hear people say. Who are you reading right now? And uh, you noted before that you're a great DJ. What are you listening to right now? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, put me on the spot. Um, (laughs) Thanks. Well, I am reminding myself of Frank Lloyd Wright by reading some of the biographies and just it's it's amazing because I obviously had read like Brendan Gill's book when it came out years ago and Neil Levine and all these people have written about Frank Lloyd Wright. So I'm catching up on some of the more current writing and reminding myself of that whole history. I'm also reading Knausgaard, My Struggle. I'm now in the middle of the second book, which is, it's one of those books that I'm not sure I love, but I'm completely fascinated with and I can't put it down. I have to sometimes remove myself from it because it gets too depressing, but it's, it's quite brilliant. So Aaron, I'm, I'm reading the same series and I can fully underline everything you've been yeah. saying. He, yeah. he, he can make walking down the street seem like the most <laughs> fascinating activity you could possibly imagine. It's, it's absolutely spectacular. I, I actually think it's a, a good book for architects to read because if they can look the way and see the way he sees, I think they will, it will make them much better architects. Those are the main things I'm reading right now. In terms of music, I'm trying to think what I have been listening to lately. I'm, I'm sort of now I'm looking at my iTunes and trying to figure out what I've downloaded lately. <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to do the usual kind of, you know, aging yuppie vampire weekend type of thing. <laughs> I'm sure they'd be flattered to know that you listen to their music. Uh, uh, let me see. I'm trying to figure out where is my, let me see if I can find out my. Uh, where do you do somewhere you can find out what you've downloaded most recently. And I, I, right. I, I can't, but I toggle back and forth between alternative music and classical music. And about the only music that I have less interest in is jazz. For some reason, that's never interested me that much, but uh, just about, just about every other music there is. I think one of the greatest inventions of technology in the last couple of years has been XM radio, because by toggling between, you know, Alt Nation and XM and a few other stations, I can I can keep up with my students if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you can if you think of anything else that you that comes to mind, you can feel free to share it. But I, I also wanted to ask a little bit about trends, not in music necessarily, but in influencing between art and architecture. Because obviously, in your history career, you've had a lot of positions in art institutions and architecture institutions, and you've established a common thread throughout both through your career. But at the same time, this move to the Frank Lloyd Wright School seems a little bit perhaps out of character. Do you see trends in academia and practice for both art and architecture that are co-influencers of each other? Or what do you see as being in common between those two major fields? Well, I'm not sure what it has to do with why I went to Taliesin, but to to answer your question, one thing that that I've been speaking about a fair amount in my lectures uh, these days is the resurgence in collage and the interest in making art out of found materials that are brought together not to create a a, not within an overall order but to discover an order through the act of bringing them together i'm interested in the art and the architecture of hunting and gathering and for me that really has a strong relationship to this notion of tactical urbanism and of collage architecture the notion that we don't necessarily need to create more buildings that we uh, place according to an abstract grid, plunk down on the landscape and then place people in and expect them to live and work and play within those prisons, but rather that we think of architecture as a gathering together, a revealing, a rethinking, a reusing, a reimagination 
of what already exists. And many of the artists that I admire are doing the same thing. Many of the music that I enjoy does the same thing. And I think uh, much of the, the architecture that I think is of interest and of relevance is going in that direction. Aaron, I'm, I want to ask you a question. And first, before I figure out how to frame it, because I don't want to be rude, I'm going to ask you, are you familiar with the comedy series Between Two Ferns? No, I'm not. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, it's very funny. And Brad Pitt was on it recently, and they asked him a question about living in his wife's shadow, yeah. basically, which was kind of funny because Brad Pitt is Brad Pitt, you know, but, but you know, he's got a famous wife, too. Right. But the question, because what's in the way it came to me is it struck me, I was reading on a, the, one of the Taliesin Facebook pages, responses to the fact that you have been appointed. And one of the first responses was a lady who said, what an excellent addition he will be to Frank Lloyd Wright's legacy. And that just made me feel like she was assuming that you were going to be just absorbed into this other <laughs> legacy and that your own legacy doesn't matter anymore, right? That you're now absorbed into Frank Lloyd Wright and you're part of that. Could you talk a little bit, because you have been an incredibly influential thinker within architecture. I'd like to know, how do you see your legacy coming out of this, assuming that Frank Lloyd Wright is not a black hole that will just suck you in? Yeah, I, and, and I'm not sure that she meant that. I, again, I think that for me, Frank Lloyd Wright when I gave a lecture at Taliesin, I talked about this. You have to also see Frank Lloyd Wright within a tradition. And again, that is the tradition of arts and crafts and of uh, American pragmatism. It's also the tradition of American romanticism. You know, he was a great lover of Emerson and people like that. And those are all traditions that I have been very attracted to and been engaged with. You know, my very first book, was on James Gamble Rogers, uh, the subtitle, The Architecture of Pragmatism, and talked about James Gamble Rogers, who was the same age as uh, Franklin Wright, and they, they knew each other in Chicago, though they did not like each other. But he also came out of that American pragmatist tradition and, and took it in a very different direction. So if I'm part of some tradition, I'm very happy to be part of that tradition because it is work that I admire and, and that I hope I can point people towards and hope that I can in some way continue. Well, those are traditions that I'm, I'm very, very happy to be part of. So, I, I, you know, it's funny. I never thought of a legacy or anything like that. I, I think the closest I have come to worrying about that is making books, because these days we all realize that books are not always that useful. And they're always, if you will, lost leaders. You never make money doing them, and they take an extraordinary amount of time. And yet I feel it's important so now and then to memorialize, if you will, what I've been thinking about and looking at and what I would like to share with people by putting it into a book. And so I'm writing a book about modernism, or I've written a book about modernism that should be out this spring. Uh, I'm doing a book with Urban Think Tank, and I'm, I'm working on some other book projects. Those are the places, I think those are the objects that I think of as having some sort of legacy. But if my legacy in teaching can be to find a way that the traditions of Taliesin can continue forward into the 21st century and can be central to the, the absolutely vital task of architecture in helping us figure out how to make our world better in a physical sense, in a sustainable sense, in a social sense, and in a cultural and aesthetic sense, then I will be very, very happy. Somewhat related to this notion of the public having opinions about you coming into Taliesin because when you say the word architecture, people say 
oh, Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, that's the, in America, certainly, that's who, when you mention architect, that's who people know of. He's the only one that most people know of. And, you know, related to these uh, sort of trend pieces that have been going on in the media lately, there are so many people who really talk about preferring traditional architecture. And I don't know that they even know what that means, but they prefer traditional architecture. And yet, Frank Lloyd Wright, who was by no means a traditionalist, Mm. is enormously popular. I'm wondering if you're seeing a way that you can bring the way that Frank Lloyd Wright is revered and how much people appreciate him to a broader audience, a non-architecture audience, because you're now in this position to put out the fact that Frank Lloyd Wright was an experimentalist. He was not just doing something traditional. Again, I think this ties in with the legacy question because Frank Lloyd Wright is just frankly so popular. First of all, I, I always think it's very strange that we think that this notion that people, whoever they are, prefer traditional architecture is something brand new. I mean, as you point out, Frank Lloyd Wright struggled with this more than a century ago and throughout his life. And architects have struggled with this since the Renaissance, if not before. We probably don't have enough records to know if they struggled with it before. In the same way that this notion that there is some evil plot that is usually seen as a cabal of what we now call starchitects and critics and institutions like MoMA or the New York Times to foist some sort of elitist architecture on the people. You know, that's that's exactly what people said, though you'd have to change the names a bit, in the 19th century, in the 18th century, at the beginning of the 20th century. This is not new. I think what is more interesting to me is to ask the question, I think you're, you're right that Frank Lloyd Wright found a way at certain points in his career to create an architecture that was experimental and in some cases revolutionary that at the same time had a deep resonance and an immediate appeal to very different parts of its audience, of its users, of people even looking at it from afar. And I would love to figure out more, and that's part of what I'm doing as I'm reading these things, how he did that and why it worked in that way. That, to me, would be, again, something in the traditions of Taliesin that I think could be very useful for us today. Aaron, throughout this discussion, one of the things I was trying to put together and in thinking about Wright, you know, here is this man who's, by some estimates, very aloof, had several wives, seemingly inaccessible by most people, wears a cape, had a beret, walked around with a cane. <laughs> but he somehow was able to connect, like you said, with various different types of people. And he made homes for very basic people. And that resonated for a large number of people. So when I think of, we turn this question or discussion around back to the beginning, it seems in a lot of ways that the things that people were attracted to about him are the, were the wrong things and that the profession has kind of donned this cape without a real appreciation of the fundamental living conditions of the normal, of the normal human being, which he seemed to have a better sense of than any of the star architects that exist today. And he's, he, was, he still seemed rooted in very humble, even if he was an outsized character who still resonates today, he still managed to, to do these Usonian homes that really spoke to a very common and decent core of uh, a working class citizen. I, I agree. He was a very charismatic and enigmatic character in, in many ways. And his ability to, as you say, pull off that uh, a body of work and a body of thinking that went all the way 
from grand homes for the very wealthy and rather strongly formed objects like the Guggenheim, all the way to creating these very humble Usonian houses. And before that, of course, the the prairie school houses, working in very small communities as well as in uh, in the big cities, was really extraordinary. And, and I think you're absolutely right. That's something that we can live with. I think what's very important to point out is that Frank Lloyd Wright is not Howard Rohr. <laughs> Howard Rohr might have, in part, have been read based on Anne Rand's misreading or misinterpretation of Frank Lloyd Wright, but Frank Lloyd Wright was not Howard Rohr. Oh, I wish more people understood that. <laughs> Dang it, Anne Rand, just, she screwed the whole profession. But, you know, yeah. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. I think that, yes, this is only the beginning and you'll find your seat very quickly, but we're looking forward to seeing what will happen with the school and all of our fingers are crossed. So thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank all of you. It was a wonderful discussion. I look forward to welcoming all of you to Taliesin. Thank you. We'll show up in the moving van. (laughs) I will be there. (laughs) My family lives in Phoenix still, so I'll be there. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Bye-bye. Thanks, Aaron. That was great talking with Betsky. We were really glad to have him on uh, relatively short notice as well and to talk about the recent appointment. I think that it's something that it's hard to call a lot about right now because obviously it's the very beginning. We'll have to wait and see what it's like after he's had some time to get into the school and do the whole great migration and all that. But um, it was great to see how he kind of has this dream for positioning Taliesin and what its future could be. And he's clearly not discounting anything. He's got his hopes set high. And uh, I also must say that I'm really excited. He mentioned the um, Ken when you asked him about what what's he, what he's reading. I was super happy to hear what book he was reading because I love those books and I would I will heavily recommend them to anyone who will listen. I'll not take the podcast as his platform to try to compel everyone to do it, but it's great. Remind us of the title again. The title is My Struggle, not the Hitler My Struggle, but <laughs> another My Struggle. <laughs> That's the English title of the Norwegian author. So yeah, what did you guys think of uh, what Betsky had to say? Ambitious. Definitely. It would be great to see that um, school be a um, change agent for the education of architects in this country and and knowing that it has a lot in front of it to get to that point. But with him in the lead and it seems like a solid five-year plan. And so if everything works out and the way they anticipate, I think it would be great to see what that school could actually do to kind of be a difference maker and be a, an alternative to um, other MARC programs out there. So I'm excited. And Donna, I really liked your question about pacing as Besky has a lot of experience mm-hmm. working in art institutions and architecture education institutions as compared have very different paces at which they work, how things can actually happen, how the bureaucracy and the policy get adapted towards changing pedagogical needs or desires. So I really think that that's something that Betsky will thrive at. He's very good at pushing quick change when quick change needs to happen. So maybe we'll see something that we haven't really seen in the turtle world that is architectural (laughs) education adaptation. I mean, it was really exciting to me because it also, to me, it aligns with what I see going on in architectural education right now. And it's because of my work with the emerging professionals in the AIA and with NAAB's changes that they're they're talking about. I feel like architectural education is in a really interesting place and the the field is going to look very different in 10 years. And, And I am frankly really excited and optimistic about it. You know, I think that all disciplines are starting to look at how calcified institutional bureaucracies just cannot continue to operate in this world of, you know, Twitter and everything. Things change so quickly and people have so much more power to make changes happen, I think. 
I feel like architectural education in general is in quite a time of flux. And I'm actually really excited about it going off in some different directions and being more diverse in a lot of ways. And I think that Aaron Betsky's appointment at Taliesin is just going to really be one to watch, frankly. I, I was kind of despairing what was going to happen with the school, and I just feel completely optimistic about it at this point. I think it's a really interesting time, too, that he's stepping in because I think the school as as an institution has kind of hit rock bottom in its history. So it seems like an opportunity for them to just reinvent themselves. Yeah, definitely. You know, Donna is right. I mean, it, you know, in terms of the idea that it's an interesting time, I think it's it's an interesting time for a lot of the private institutions. Mm-hmm. They're much more nimble at um, being a change agent for their institutions. State schools don't have that luxury. They're beholden to a whole different thing. And the asses in the seats is what matters. And, you know, when I rail on NJIT and, and a dean that's been there for over 20 years, he was probably there when some of the students were born, you know, I mean, that's how long he's been there. And that's a, where's the change agent for the students who can't afford to go to, you know, these exclusive schools, uh, these MR programs and take on $200,000 in debt. I mean, the change needs to happen where the greatest need is. And I, and I get it. I mean, I want a vibrant and robust design profession that is pushing boundaries. And But I also want a, I want a working class architect to come out of a state school, not saddled with debt, but getting a decent education and not wholly reliant on deans who are, who have extended their uh, worn out date and have, uh, are dealing with founder's syndrome, you know, or and don't see that they're not being, and I think that's what's nice about having Betsky take on this program is that you could really see what the possibilities are for a decent education. And I don't know if it's going to be affordable for anybody, but um, at least in the long run, maybe the more institutions that, you know, push, keep the more that people keep looking at these private institutions for the change, maybe that stuff can actually filter its way down and we can get rid of some of the, the dead weight in some of these state schools that are preventing kids like me from getting kids like me. Um, <laughs> I'm a spry 46, <laughs> damn it, from getting a decent education. And, you know, I had some great professors and I think it, they would be sorely missed if we didn't have those people in state schools as well. And they just get bought off by other programs because they have the money. So if I can use that opportunity to lead us into sort of our closing or endorsements. Today on Twitter, there was an AIA emerging professionals chat called, like, it was like hashtag AIA chat that was focused on the topic of diversity within schools. And it, it was, you know, it was the same questions we've been asking and struggling with in a lot of ways, but definitely this question of people who cannot take on a huge amount of debt, um, how do we make sure that we get those talented people educated? That's a huge question. Ken, I think you're totally right to raise that, that the state schools need to be more nimble, frankly, and somehow we need to start valuing education more so that more people can afford it. Yeah. So if anyone's interested in that AIA chat, it was hashtag AIA chat and it happened today and it was, you know, a bunch of people weighing in and answering certain specific questions and it was a, it was a good discussion. I wanted to say this because I've been thinking a lot about this. A few years ago, there was that big push to push uh, from a BARC to a, a 4 plus 2 or a program where they were getting rid of the BARC degrees and, and giving people masters. And everyone's like, wow, everybody walks out of school with a master. That would be great. But what nobody tells anyone <laughs> is that the University of Minnesota used to have a BARC program. Now it's a 4 plus 3, 4 plus 2 or something along those lines. So the only way you can get out of U of M, other than you know getting your 4 and then going on and transfer to another school, the only way you can get out of here with a degree that you can actually get licensed in 
is to take on that four plus two or four plus three. Or, again, I'm not entirely sure. I didn't look into it a whole lot. But the people that are coming out of that program are coming out of that program with $200,000 in oh, debt. God. And that's a state school. Yeah. That's a state school. State that's school, so 200000 in debt. <laughs> the education of an architect should not cost you $200,000 to be a licensed practitioner. People actually assume that the only way you could be, a, and I don't know who's feeding this monster, but I talk to people and they go, well, I can't be a licensed architect if I don't have a master's. I'm like, well, what do you mean? I've got a BR. How are you? I have a professional degree. I'm a licensed architect. You know, there's some weird thought out there that you can't get a professional degree unless in practice, unless you get a master's degree. So it's leading these kids down this path of just ridiculous debt. And I don't buy this bullshit that the institutions and people put out there that they should have known better. The institutions are changing the way the game works. And they know why they're changing the game works because they know that they can charge tuition fees for the master's level classes that are exorbitant. Yeah. I mean, they're ridiculous. I mean, you take on one credit more than you're allowed and you're, you're starting paying graduate student fees. Mm-hmm. Then you're paying a graduate tuition rate. And it's, it's nuts. It's nuts. And they're doing it purposely because they want more money. It's the same education I'm getting as a, in a BARC, but they want more money because now it's an MARC. Well, what? Because I've got one credit more and now you're going to charge me more. It's, it's pretty poorly run. And it has been a change that has sort of shifted in the last 10, maybe 12 years. I'm a big fan of the BARC. I wish more programs would go back to the Bachelor of Architecture. It's a great degree. Five years is plenty of time to figure out how to do this and then to figure it out further in practice, which one of the news items this week was about Ariba. The Royal Institute of British Architects, I think, did a poll mm-hmm. where more people, the majority of students and practitioners, I think, were saying they think that students need to learn more about practice in school. Yeah, I made the post on it and it was the striking similarities in the agreement between students and recent graduates and employers looking for new hires, people who are fresh out of school, not hiring for higher positions, um, but for people who have just graduated and how around 80% consistently had agreed that not only does our schools, and this is again in the UK, so it's not a worldwide system, but that the schools in the UK were far more preferentially treating design thinking from a theoretical perspective and not from a practice perspective. And that that both parties also wished that there were more practice-oriented things. There were some weird discrepancies based on like what the students thought would be really important for new hires to be. Like they thought the prestige of the school would be ranked really high, and not and that they thought that actual working personality wouldn't be that important. And the employers, as it might not be that strange to suggest, thought the opposite. Thought that the personality was far more important than the prestige of the school. So. I would direct anyone who's interested in like the barometers and the pushing trends in architecture education to look towards that study. It wasn't a totally exhaustive one, but especially if you're work- going to work in the UK, um, it will be very telling. And I know that the change for a master's or four plus six, four plus three program, that also has a lot to do with a, a globalization of education standards, mm-hmm. knowing people who have gone sure. through school in the EU who have completely different formats and institutions of education, but whether because they're free and run by the state entirely, or because they just cast architecture in a completely different discipline. It's not, you don't get a BS or you can't, that's not part of it. You go to an art school and that's what you, you, you might specialize in architecture. And that does prepare you to practice architecture. But when you go to the US or you go outside of the EU to practice with that people don't get it. It doesn't make sense to them. So there's been this effort to kind of 
genericize and make accessible throughout UK plus EU and um, American standards to make it more easy to practice, which does seem good on one level, but has inflated the education to like just both in terms of money and time. <laughs> so it's definitely, we're definitely in need of an overhaul. Yeah. I thought, um, you know, when I talked to professors when I was at school about what master's programs were like prior to, you know, the whenever, they often talked about how master's program actually meant something. You were actually going to learn under a master. You were going to learn under Khan. You were going to learn under um, Mies. You were going to schools to learn under a master. That seems less likely. I mean, yes, are some of the big names teaching at schools? Obviously. But it doesn't seem to have the prestige that it once had because it was a little bit more exclusive and you were getting that further added value to your education and seems like they're front ending that and everyone's missing about how to put a building together. And it seems to be that study you mentioned and how the prestige is more important. The students think prestige is more important. seems kind of in line with our Facebook, Twitter generation, where the more tweets, the retweets, the Facebook likes, all that kind of crap is more kind of in their face. And what's more important is that people see me and see where I went rather than what I am as a person. Womp, womp. Good point. Yeah. need to be so like Debbie Downer. <laughs> It'd be all generational on you little. As a member of that generation, I completely agree with you, Ken. So don't worry about it. <laughs> interesting times. We live in interesting times. Well, I would like to actually bring up, this isn't a traditional endorsement, but um, I recently took a trip through uh, the Southern California state parks. Um, I visited on a camping trip this last weekend, Enzabrego State Park and the Salton Sea. And the Salton Sea I wanted to bring up because if this were ever an instance of non-architectural me talking about what I did this weekend, but actually has everything to do with architecture, this is a perfect one. The Salton Sea is this crazy, weird anomaly in Southern California that through multiple accidental and purposeful floodings of the Colorado River has created this super salinated lake in Southern California that is completely stagnant. It's not um, emptying into Baja California anymore. It's not being reconstituted from anything. It's kind of just a giant salty pool. And it's a really, Ken, you were talking about bald eagles earlier. <laughs> um, it's actually a really important stop by in the flyaway highway from like Canada that birds take all the way down south to South America in the winter. So the birds rely on this. It's an incredibly rich ecosystem but it's basically going to be gone in another 50 years or so. The lake will evaporate. There's no, it's too salty to continue creating precipitation and condensation back into the water. So this is a problem for architects. I see this as a problem as for landscapers, for people who are able to adapt this land into some other purpose where it can still be used for birds. Maybe birds are your client. I don't know. And you go and you you take this incredibly harsh landscape of a salt, of a super salty sea in the middle of the California desert, and you try to see it as a design issue that we need to service this ecological function in a very specific time frame. It might not exist. So how do we adapt the landscape to serve the needs of the surrounding ecosystem? So that's my plug of why I think that's also, to go back to our intro discussion, there is totally ways to bring in the seemingly completely non-architectural to the conversation and Screw you, I'm going to talk about my weekend. I'll find a way to talk about my weekend. <laughs> totally agree. I absolutely agree. It, you know, we can design our way out of anything. And that's if you're a designer, that's how you look at the world is, look, here's a problem. How can, What can I do to solve this problem? Yeah, and the Salton Sea is just bonkers. Like anyone in Southern California has to go there. It's crazy. Just check it out. It's beautiful, but insane. I saw two movies, so I want to endorse those. <laughs> Were they about architecture, Ken? No, one was about uh, birds. Okay. 
which call call our new client uh, Birdman. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Birdman and I oh how was Birdman? You know I I've never seen a film quite like that film. Very well acted, very well constructed, and. I don't know a lot about the director or the sound person, but they made you feel like you were in that space. And I love films that kind of play with the sound coming out of different channels. And so that you're looking around and trying to figure out who is that making that noise behind me. And I really like when I get that sense that I'm actually physically in that scene. And um, I thought it did a really good job of connecting me in that way. Then I had to go see um, American Sniper. Uh-oh. So, yeah, yeah. It's not anywhere as good as um, people want to talk about, so it wasn't terribly interesting. Uh, there was probably the only moment in the film that really kind of gave me a sense of this is probably a real criticism of our involvement was how these people who you depend on to be very tactical and very precise, how emotional they got, and they t- let their emotions take control of their actions, and they were actually doing things that didn't have a real mission and um, so I thought that was kind of that that's kind of what happened. If that was the only kind of criticism of our involvement in Iraq, that was probably the biggest takeaway for me is that it really kind of gave you the sense that, yeah, it was completely motion. It wasn't anything about really anything strategic. It wasn't about anything. It wasn't factual. It wasn't about any. And it was a very narrow piece um, worldview of that particular uh, individual's account of, the, of his experience in the war. So so that was my interesting. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Ken. I think we were talking about this earlier yeah. that I thought the the one really nice thing that has uh, come up recently on the forums is a thread started by the first time I've actually named a person on Arconnect, uh, Mighty AA. How do you find a partner or other firm to merge with? A really difficult and enlightening thread about an architect's experience about how to deal as a sole proprietor and how to struggle, what the struggles are with having a firm and it's particularly pointing at the towards the at, towards the end of the thread. I think where it's just obviously the most current. It, it talking about when life takes over and it really totally fucks your firm and it fucks your mental state and and how difficult it is to kind of keep it all together. And I think you know it's not a pity party. I didn't get, ever get the sense of that because the people I think are really really constructive around it. But um, there's a lot of good information in there and something that I will be digging through time and time again because it's um, particularly current for me. Um, so I really was surprised to see this pop up today. And it was kind of like, wow, this is kind of um, a little bit of serendipitous uh, moment here. So I wanted to endorse that particular thread. I, I loved that thread also. And this is to me where our connect is at its best is when people are sharing experiences and, and helping one another through that. Um, but, but I thought it was especially interesting was that Mighty AA started this thread, I think back in November or a while ago, and it sort of had fizzled out. And then somebody came up and said, hey, Mighty AA, can you update us on what's happening with you? And he or she responded and the conversation went on. And that's to me what gives me optimism or makes me feel good that by sharing personal stories about what you're doing in our profession, other people will learn from it. You know, other people will say, wow, this really, you know, I really enjoyed hearing your perspective on this. And, um, I feel like this thread has been a great example of that. So um, yeah, architecture is a hard business, you guys. It's great and awesome. And those of us who do it mostly don't ever want to do anything else, but it's a demanding lover. (laughs) You know, I just wanted to tack on to that a little bit to say that this is a, it's a marathon. I mean, it's, it sounds so trite to say it, but it really is a marathon. You know, the one piece of advice I think I can impart to anyone is that 
it's a long, hard slog. You're going to find great people who are going to tell you all these great things and that you're going to learn a lot from. And, and I've learned a lot from a few and I've learned a lot of good things from a few and a lot of bad things from a few. And I think you're going to encounter that no matter what. And I think, you know, this is a particularly good place to kind of understand that I think we're competitors in the sense that we all compete for the same jobs. But at the same time, we want to keep pushing this profession along and strengthen it so it doesn't get taken down by regulatory changes or institutions with uh, moneyed interest. And, and I think the only way we can do that is to kind of continue to look at topics like this and kind of keep pushing that stone up the hill and, and hopefully we'll get over the top. Absolutely agree. So on that note, are we done? <laughs> You guys are free to go. <laughs> no, I just, you know, it's been a long show. You're excused. No, I think, I think now's a yeah. good time. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great as always. And I feel like we could just talk on and on and on and on and on. There's so much to talk about. And there's nothing I love more than talking about architecture. So who's next? Next up is uh, Jimenez Lai. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yes. So stay tuned to next week's show. Jimenez Lai. Yeah. Jimenez wow. uh, has actually already been in our studio to record this episode. So we're, we're one week in, uh, ahead of ourselves, but it was a great conversation. So really looking forward to that, to that show next week. And until then he drops some F bombs too. <laughs> yep. Not that we're counting. But. So thanks to everybody for listening to us. Thanks to anybody who will uh, be willing to give us some feedback uh, about our intros and the show in general, that's, Feedback can be sent to us on Twitter with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. That's one way that we'll all get it very quickly. You can always email us too at connectedarconnect.com. Uh, you can leave a message on our podcast hotline at 213-784-7421 uh, with a message up to three minutes. And, uh, and as always, if you like the podcast, or I guess even if you don't like it, you can uh, rate us and review us on iTunes. We really appreciate that. It uh, bumps up our, uh, our status on iTunes so more people start listening to us. So it's, uh, it's great for the show. And that's about it. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Great talking to you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.